This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week, we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue and the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. This week, can the new AUKUS alliance contain China? Plus, what can be done to save the Church of England's parishes? And finally, is there a way to end queuing? First up, in his cover piece this week, James Forsyth writes that the new AUKUS pact has fixed the contours of the next 30 years of British foreign policy. Britain, he says, is no longer trying to stay neutral in the competition between America and China. Also writing in the magazine this week, Francis Pike, author of Empires at War, A Short History of Modern Asia Since World War II, gives the case against AUKUS. They both join me now. James, in your cover piece for the magazine, you write about the new AUKUS pact between the US, the UK and Australia. Can you summarise briefly what that alliance entails? So essentially, Australia has a very close trading relationship with China. And Australia had managed to avoid you know, having to make a choice between its US security alliance and its economic alliance with China. It was managing to ride two horses at once. That was becoming more difficult. You had uh, the decision on Huawei, where Australia were quite early in saying that they didn't want them involved in the construction of their 5G network. And then you had coronavirus when the Australians called for an independent inquiry into its origins. That, for reasons that I will let listeners decide, caused a huge amount of upset in Beijing. It thought that the economic relationship should buy a certain amount of deference from Australia. And it responded by slapping tariffs on Australian goods, raising bureaucratic obstacles to Australian exports. There were cyber attacks on Australia, which bore all the hallmarks of a Chinese operation. When Australia carried out military exercises of its allies, two Chinese spy ships parked themselves off the Queensland coast in international waters to kind of observe. I mean, Australia felt under more and more pressure. Now, Australia was surrounded, you know, it's a junction of three different oceans. And I think it felt that it needed to upgrade its submarine capability. It was already in line to buy some diesel subs from the French. The problem with diesel subs is their range is more limited. Uh, They have to come up to the surface to recharge their batteries. Australia decided that what it needed for protection was was nuclear-powered submarines that can essentially stay out on patrol for as long as you've got food and water to do so. Australia then came to the UK and said, look, we would like to get in essentially on this deal that you already have with the US to obtain this technology. And... From that, you had this Australia-UK-US deal arranged. It it is clearly, from the US's point of view, it gets two things out of this. It's trying to build a series of alliances in the Pacific to check China, and it binds Canberra more closely to it and gets a more capable ally once it has received these boats. And it also, in doing this, creates a kind of... Remember how, it's not that long ago, but... In 2015, that Xi Jinping was being hailed here on a state visit. You know, the UK was was kind of rolling out the red carpet for him. This binds the UK into an anti-China alliance, and I think means that you will not see the UK going back to trying to, to curry favour with Beijing. What the UK gets out of it is a presence in 
the Pacific, which is, I would argue, where, where the continent, where the, the, the area where the future of the world is currently being decided in both technological, economic and military terms. It gives the UK a relevance in the Pacific that it has not had for quite some time. Francis, do you think that the AUKUS Pact, a, uh, an anti-China alliance, as James just put it, do you think it's a good strategy for containing China? Look, I, I think, you know, I've written quite a, a lot for The Spectator on the, the subject of the, the danger that China poses to the West. And I'm all in favour of an alliance of the willing to contain Chinese expansionism. But I think there are several problems with the alliance. And for me, the first problem is that we've humiliated France. Now, France is not a pygmy in military terms. It's also been very active in the Pacific. And I think it's it's been foolish not to bring them into this deal. If this deal was going to be done, they should have been brought into it. And it should have been explained to them in a, in a behind-doors way that Australia actually wanted a better submarine force. Perfectly reasonable suggestion. And I think the humiliation of France points to one of the problems with the the AUKUS deal, and in fact, uh, the whole nature of the Western Alliance is that it hasn't been coordinated in an efficient way. And one of the one of the aspects of that is that there's a supposition here that it's only China we, we've got a problem with. We've always got a problem with Russia, which is the junior partner to China. To me, it doesn't make sense for Britain to be perceived as a Pacific power. It makes more sense for Britain to be perceived as part of a global alliance against the totalitarian powers, but to focus their military capability, technology capability on Russia, not on the Pacific. Now, the other problem with, with AUKUS is, is this. It's three white powers. It's going to be portrayed by some people in Asia as a, as a white man's stitch up, another imperial go round, which I think the wrong perception. So I think it would have been better to, uh, if you were going to do this, to, to bring in some of the Asian countries, which have a real interest in containing Chinese power. So I'm talking about, obviously, uh, India and Japan primarily, but in the future, one would want to try and bring in uh, you know, South Korea, the, you know, the Philippines, maybe get Thailand back from Chinese, Chinese interests, Vietnam possibly going, going in the future. So, so I think the problem with August is it, it, it doesn't look right to me. So these are the problems I've got with, with AUKUS. In terms of Britain being a global global power, I think we have the elites in, in Asia, when they think of Britain, they think of three things. They think of how good are our universities, because they want to send their children to. Our, so schools and universities, that's soft power. They think of our financial strength, the, the, the strength of London financial markets, uh, that's our power. The third thing, honestly, Asians think, think about, so they think about the premiership. And that, you know, if, if, we, you know, if we actually wanted to improve our image in Asia, we'd actually send Harry Kane and the, bo- the boys out, out to Asia. That'd be much better value for money than sending an aircraft carrier. So I, I think Francis is right about France being mishandled, but I think there is a. I think beyond France's commercial peak, there is a, there is a genuine difference of opinion here. I, I think the, the the UK and Australia are both prepared to accept that containing China, checking China, is going to require US leadership, 
And I think the French are not prepared to accept that. I think they have, in the same way that France left the military command structures of NATO during the Cold War, I think that France wants this strategic autonomy in the Indo-Pacific. And I think that makes it, you know, in some ways, the French reaction to AUKUS shows why they were unsuitable to, to join it in the first place. They don't want to sign up to US leadership in this part of the world. Um, so, I mean, that, that is the first problem. I, I think on France's point about not looking right, I think this isn't the only alliance. I think, you know, I think you can argue that just as important is the Quad, which will meet in Washington in person, head of state or government level for the first time, which is, you know, the US, Australia, India and Japan. And they are going to start working on secure semiconductor supply chains, which is obviously very important in terms of dealing with China. So I think you're going to see a series of overlapping US alliances in the Pacific. I also think you're going to see, for example, the UK and Japan working much more closely on on the future combat air system. You know, I think you will see so you'll see more and more of these overlapping answers. I think we'll deal with, with some of those concerns. On the point about whether the UK should be a player in the Pacific or not, I, I, I think two things. I think one, ultimately, I think it is very dangerous for the security of Europe to have a division of labour where the US does the Pacific. And the European powers do Russia. I think ultimately that will lead to America losing interest in Europe. I think a big mistake was actually made at the most recent NATO summit, which was, you know, the US wanted a greater NATO involvement in the Pacific. And I think that the European reluctance to sign up to that, people will look back on and regard as a European strategic mistake. And then I think my next point is, you know, the future of the world is, is technological. And look at the technological elements of this AUKUS pact, you know, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, look at what the Quad is doing on semiconductors. I think if the UK is absent from the Pacific, it is going to get left behind in technological terms, and that would be a disaster for it in the 21st century. I also think that Russia, Russia is Russia is a kind of cyber irritant, but it is not, but you know, it is the competition with China which is going to be where the technological advances are made. And I think if the, if the UK was to be absent from that field, and if this cooperation on technology was between uh, the US and Australia, or the members of the Quad, and the UK had no role in that, that would ultimately be very bad for the UK. Francis, do you think, regarding China's response to AUKUS, I mean, at the moment, they've expressed quite a lot of dismay about it. But do you think China will now try to build its own network of alliances in the Pacific to try and counter not just AUKUS, but some of these these other alliances, which, which James has mentioned, such as the Quad and, and the TTP, Five Eyes and so on. You know, China doesn't have many real potential allies in in Asia. It has, um, to some extent, Thailand has been suborned. Philippines is on the edge. Vietnam is cowed into submission. Korea is staying strangely silent at the moment. I think it's looking to see which way the cookie crumbles, as it were. But China's big enough, it's becoming big enough militarily to to stand by itself in in, in the Pacific. And they you know if you look at the, the naval building program, it's clearly going to hugely outstrip that of America. It's going to take some time for China to catch up with America. And you know American naval tonnage is 3.2 million tons and, and China is, is just under a million a million tons. So America is still th- more than three times bigger than than China in terms of hard assets. But you know that will change change over time. And I think 
China clearly sees itself as dominating, particularly its own pond, which is the South China Sea, and that's the that's clear their 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 most important thing to control. Apart from the one other thing we haven't mentioned, and which the British Strategic Review in March didn't mention, was was Taiwan, and I find our silence on that subject peculiar. And we, of course, Theresa May mentioned it last week and in the debate debate last week. Well, Francis, you wrote an article for The Spectator back in March where you expressed concern that Britain might be heading to war over Taiwan. I mean, do you think these recent events have made that more likely? Look, Xi Jinping has a record of carrying through with what he says. I mean, I think it took a long time for us to believe that when he came to power. But in his maiden speech as Chinese leader, he made it quite clear what he intended to do. And but I think it took, you know, five or six years before that became clear that he was actually falling through on stuff, that he was moving away from the the Deng Xiaoping line of of being uh, quiet in international matters, being careful and circumspect. But he's made it quite clear that by the time of 2032, which he clearly intends to stay as leader until that time, that he wants Taiwan back in, in, in that period. And that will be his legacy. Now, I think there is a very good chance he would do that. Now, having said that, would we go to war? Now, well, that would that would depend a lot on America. Now, personally, whatever America says, whatever is written into any treaty, I think America would not commit a single American life to the defence of Taiwan. I think America has no choice but to defend Taiwan. Yeah, I think we fundamentally disagree on... on no, 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 I, I just I think that, you know, if Taiwan falls to China, I mean, A, Taiwan has a vital, for all the reasons that Francis alluded to in his piece, has, has a vital strategic location. But if Taiwan falls to China, that is the end of a US-led world order. I think at that point, if you are South Korea or Japan, you, you need to come to an accommodation with China. I think that is... Um, and my worry about a war with Taiwan is that um, I'm very persuaded by the American academic Hal Brands' argument that that China is like Wilhelmine Germany or Imperial Japan in the 1940s. Its, its rise is slowing. And if you look at the, the alliances the US is building, I think in, in a decade's time, it will be clear that China will not be able to dominate the Pacific. But the danger is that China sees a window of opportunity closing and tries to seize Taiwan in that window. Now, I mean, I, but I, I personally think that no US president really has a choice but to defend Taiwan. It would be su- it would be the end of a US-led world order. You know, it would be essentially the, the US ceasing to be the, the global hegemon and instead becoming uh, essentially a return to the Monroe Doctrine. It, was, it would be powerful enough to keep people out of its own hemisphere, but it wouldn't be able to project power globally. I think the US would have to fight over Taiwan. And I think that for that reason, it's imperative that the US defends Taiwan, helps defend Taiwan, not I'm not saying end the strategic ambiguity, because I think that's one of the things that could prompt a Chinese attack. But I think that, you know, I think what Taiwan needs actually in terms of defence is much more basic stuff like mines than more aircraft carriers. Francis, do you agree with James there that the, the problems that China is facing at the moment actually make it more of a risk in the short term? Yeah, um, China has a problem. I'm, when China is growing more than 10% some 10 years ago, I gave a a speech at Shanghai University on the subject of growth. And I shocked them all by saying China would be growing at 5% within 15 years and it would be growing at 2 or 3% you know, 15 years after that. And as I said at the time, the low-hanging fruit of economic growth, the easy 
export-led growth has really come to an end. That period has come to an end. And you've got various problems with the Chinese economy. One is obviously debt, which we've heard about recently with the, in the property sector. But we've also got a big population problem, a slowing population, soon will be a falling population, and a, an aging population, which impacts a great deal on, on economic growth. So I think China is going to be running into into, into problems in terms of economic growth. So I, mean, I rather agree with, with your point on, on timing. Well, I don't agree with, I mean, I think America has to say it's going to defend Taiwan. Whether it will actually do so, I think is, is another matter. But of course, if it does go to war with Taiwan, we'll be dragged into that as well. Thank you, James. And thank you, Francis. Next up, back in February, Emma Thompson, a rural parish volunteer, and the Reverend Marcus Walker, rector of St Bartholomew the Great, London, wrote pieces for The Spectator expressing their concern for the future of the Church of England's parish system. The Archbishops of Canterbury and York dismissed these concerns as scaremongering from rascally voices. Well, there is a reunion of rascals today, as Emma and Marcus join me to discuss the latest threat to the parish, which Emma writes about in this week's magazine. Emma, you start your piece by writing about a proposed change to church law as set out by the very unglamorously named document GS2222. Could you briefly explain what the paper proposes? Well, it's a, um, what I call the church closes charter and is something that the diocese thought because apparently they have their eye on 356 or up to 356 churches already that they want to close in response to the pandemic. And they're making the point that they would like to find it quicker and easier to, to close churches without so much consultation and with um, less in the way of rights of appeal. And the document discloses that they actually have their eye on doing closures on a much larger scale if only they had the powers. And what we feel is that they are trying to make the paperwork easier instead of addressing the actual issue, which is do so many churches really need to be closed? And so they're they're addressing the process and not the problem. Marcus, do you you agree with that? And and what do you think it would mean for parishes around the country, or could mean for parishes, uh, if the proposals of GS2222 were enacted? Oh, yes, I entirely um, agree with Emma's analysis there. And it's not just our analysis, in fact. We've asked QC to look into this to see what this measure, you know, which is inevitably framed in in sort of, well, at best legislation speak and at worst management speak, to take a look at what this would actually mean. And what it basically means is that the people who know their area best, know their church best, know the churches around them best, the people who live there, who worship there, the people who don't necessarily worship there but actually value their local parish churches, are going to be completely cut out of the process of working out how to merge, manage or close the parish churches that stand at the centre of so many communities. And what this is going to mean is that people with absolutely no idea of what the local areas actually are and need and mean, you know, some whiz kid from a management consultancy firm who's been brought in by the diocese having been told we need to cut X number of churches, will just come in and impose this on communities that have been there for generations. Well, Marcus, couldn't it be argued, though, that you know no one wants to close churches, but churchgoer numbers are in decline and, and if money just isn't there. So if churches do need to close, then you know that does it not make sense to simplify the process? Well, it depends who's best to make those kind of calls. 
I would say that one of the problems that we've faced in the Church of England over the last, I could say, 20 years, but that's probably because that's as long as I can think back, but it probably goes back, you know, it, it certainly goes back about 60, 70 years, is the idea that the centre knows better than the local. Now, there will be places where churches are going to have to close. There are places. Everybody knows that. There are areas where just demographics have shifted to such an extent that there are simply not the people there to keep going to church. The local churches are going to know that. The trouble with it being a centralised decision and wiping out the rights of appeal is that it means that the people who know, who are the least capable of making those decisions are the ones making those decisions. It also will hugely increase the capacity to bully clergy and parishes, particularly as within this, for example, the without even closing churches, the diocese will suddenly have the right to sell uh, parsonages, vicarages, rectories and so on from under the feet, under the families of the people living in them. Even though those buildings were built by and paid by the local parishes, the diocese get the money, the vicar gets chucked out. Now, if you're facing that kind of a threat, it's quite likely you're going to do whatever it is that you're told that you have to do. Hmm. So, uh, Emma, I mean, do you agree with Marcus there? I mean, do you, it, so, I mean so, it sounds like Marcus is saying that this could be about power as much as about money. I mean, do you think there are other factors at play here than just the, the finances? It does feel like a power grab, and I think part of the problem is that the vision of the church as comprising the people has shifted among the leadership to a perception that the diocese is the basic unit of the church, and we would take issue with that. I think it's very difficult to see how um, more diocesan control will lead to more volunteering. What we've seen is that the demise of the parish essentially related to having their assets and independence taken away in 1976. There's been a, a downward spiral from there. And I believe that taking incumbents away is, a, is another factor, which if the incumbent being the priest, if you take away a vicar, you see a fall in attendance at the churches and you see a fall in income. So it's a, if, you, if you respond to the undoubted problems that we've had during COVID and a fall in income by cutting the vicars who are the catalysts for giving, you exacerbate the problem. It's a bit like saying, would you at The Spectator, if you were having problems getting more subscriptions, would you then declare that you're going to close down the subscriptions um, so that they're not available to people in Chelmsford or Leicestershire where where they've got a clergy recruitment freeze? And the answer is no, obviously. How daft is that? You, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. So you're papering over the cracks because you're, re- you're reducing your overall income. So if there is this sort of spiralling problem, as you've just described, uh, what is, do you think, a more realistic approach that can be taken to some of these problems? I mean, is it a question of priorities, do you think? Absolutely. It's the allocation of resources. So you want to put the parishes back to the top of the queue because since 1976, they've essentially been milked. They've been drained of resources, which have been expended on other things and sometimes projects in, which are in direct competition with parishes. So you're, you're again reducing the parish's capability to generate the income, which is supposedly vital for the, for the survival of the Church of England. And so I think that that we would like to see the the parish prioritised now. In lean times, you tighten your belts. Obviously, we've all had difficulties during the pandemic. Income is down and people are are finding it a struggle. And so the the natural response, I think, commercially, uh, leaving aside the spiritual, should be to concentrate on your core business. And the Church of England has always proclaimed itself to be a broad church, a church for everyone everywhere. And they've got this 1,000-year-old parish network, which 
you know, has been successful in uh, making it available to people all around the country. And it seems odd to me, especially in a time when localization is back in fashion because people are now living and working much more within their communities. They're much more aware of their local areas and they care more about it. It, it seems, seems odd to have this sort of what pe many people in parishes describe as 1970s managerialism to start centralising. It's very countercultural and out of step with the country. And there was a recent Civitas report which said that the, it was called Rotting from the Head, sadly, where it said how out of touch the leaders of, of the church were with the people at the grassroots. And you, you see that in many organisations seen it in the National Trust and, and so on. So I think it's really important to listen to what the people are saying because they're your donors. You know, the the income comes from the parishes and a lot of... I, I'm from a rural church and a lot of the rural churches are providing quite a high proportion of, of the income. And they're, because they're little churches, they don't, they don't look as if they are delivering results, as it were, but they may attract quite a high proportion of the population. So I think that the, a general rethink is required in terms of what is worth resourcing. Go, go back, back to basics, in a sense. So, Marcus, you're the founder and, I would say, I think it's fair to say, chief ringleader of the Save the Parish mm. uh, campaign. Can you explain what Save the Parish is trying to achieve in, in practical terms and how it came about as well, perhaps? So Save the Parish really came about, in fact, it came about in an article in The Spectator about two months ago when realising that if we actually value the parish and the parish system, which has run so deep in the English psyche and in the psyche of the Church of England, we actually have to do something about it. It's all very well carping, it's all very well writing articles in The Spectator, wonderful though The Spectator is and the articles that are found therein, but we actually have to get off our backsides and do something. So, well, there's a general synod election coming up. If you care about saving the parish, let's actually get up and stand and do something. So I held an, an event in... Um, in my church, which is St. Bartholomew the Great in the City of London, and invited anybody who wanted to come along to come along. And we had uh, two wonderful speakers. Alison Milbank is Professor of Theology and a priest, and Stephen Trott, who's a priest and has been on General Synod and the Church Commissioners for well over 20 years. And out of that came dozens and dozens and dozens of people volunteering to stand across the country on a platform um, that we spent a good few months taking soundings, well, we didn't have a good few months, it take, took a good few weeks taking soundings and trying to work out what we actually needed to do and looking at where are the finances that can actually be returned to the parishes in order to revitalise them. Because if there is going to be a revitalisation of the Church of England, it's going to happen at the grassroots. And the really interesting thing since this has happened is how the narrative has shifted. It's wonderful to hear the Archbishops of Canterbury and York talking about the parish and how much they value it and how much they love it. And that is wonderful. And we can only welcome them into the fold. <laughs> but the big question is, you know, to quote Tom Cruise, show me the money. Um, <laughs> you know, Let's see what actually happens. Let's see if they put their money where their mouth is and actually start valuing the parochial system. And into that comes cut out the church closers charter. Yeah. Well, speaking of actually, so the final question, I suppose, is so speaking of, speaking of doing something, actually doing something about it, uh, what can be done 
now to stop this proposed change to church law from getting any further for, for those who, who agree with you that it's, it's, it's not a good idea? One, object. It's out for consultation and it's interesting. They've now extended the deadline twice. Once, first of all, to the end of September and now to the end of October, which suggests that there have been quite a few objections and that they know that there are going to be quite a few more. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is object. Let people, let the church know that this is objected to. The second thing is, if you are a churchgoer, challenge those who are standing for general synod for the laity and the clergy. And the election is going on now. We're in the middle of a general election, as I'm sure everybody knows, for the general synod. Challenge them as to whether they're going to oppose this when it comes up in synod. Three, when it does come up in Synod, encourage people to fight it. And four, if it passes Synod, then there's the House of Commons. And actually, the House of Commons has got the opportunity to say no. And so then it pose it in the Ecclesiastical Committee of the House of Commons. There's a lot, there are a lot of stages before this church closes charter actually gets to law. And can I just interject that in order to object... You can Google GS2222, go to the final page, and there's an email address in the document which you can email. You don't have to make a complicated objection, but we hope for numbers. And I do believe the scale of the support for this, for our perspective, is huge. And people like Marcus, who obviously are challenging their bosses, are incredibly brave. But I know from my postbag since I started writing about the church that there is huge, huge support for Save the Parish. People love their local church, and they want, they want it to survive. Well, Emma and Marcus, thank you very much. And finally, in a time when travel has never been faster, why has so little been done to reform queues? This is the question Harry Mount asks in the magazine this week. He joins me now, down the line from Greece, along with The Spectator's Wikiman columnist, Rory Sutherland. Harry, in your article this week, you say it's time for Britain to rethink queues. Can you explain why for our listeners? Yes, purely by coincidence, I had two new incidents uh, this week, as you can see from this image. I'm in Greece and I flew to Kalamata last week, and I also had a minor foot injury, which seemed like agony, which took me to the Royal Free Hospital. And in both cases, the technical side of things, the flight went fantastically well, and with the foot, the blood test, the x-ray, the doctor and the nurse were all fantastic. But in both cases, these terrific technological advances had these disastrous cues attached to them. So at the hospital, I had these four uh, procedures, which together lasted 20 minutes, but the waiting took almost five hours. And with the flight to Kalamata, it took me three hours and 50 minutes to fly here, but it also took me three hours and 50 minutes to get from my North London flat 17 miles to Kalamata, so sorry, to Heathrow Airport. So I was moving almost 100 times more slowly. And it's because of queues, which I think can easily be shortened. I did my own little heroic thing by removing those empty grey trays after security so that there wasn't a backlog of people waiting to pick up from the full trays. But I'm sure Rory could point out why this won't work. But uh, my idea, if this one doesn't work, another one might would be that instead of queuing four times, four separate procedures for checking in for security, for passport, and for queuing to get on the plane, you should have one queue going through all four um, barriers in one go. Now, there are problems with that, but at the same time, my general argument is technology is moving incredibly quickly, but we're still queuing like we did before. 
Rory, what do you make of Harry's argument there of, of merging four cues into one, for example? Do you think that would actually help speed up the process? It wouldn't necessarily speed up the process. It would make it psychologically a lot less painful. And I think there are two components to this which are separable but equally important. One of them is purely logistical, which is there are ways in which you can reduce wait times by simply making the process more efficient. Like, for example, removing the grey trays, which are creating a backlog in the x-ray machines. I do the same thing. And I always notice, by the way, it's usually like a scaffolder called Dave who does this. It isn't the you know high-flying business people who are understanding the whole time and motion question of what's creating a bottleneck in the system. It's always someone of a kind of practical mindset. There's a second component, which is psychological, which is the duration of a wait and the degree of frustration are not kind of linearly related. And there is, there is someone who does understand this, which is Disney, by the way. if you get, I'm not a huge Disney fan, but one thing Disney has understood very well is the psychology of queuing. They know that if a queue keeps moving, it's a lot less frustrating than if it grinds to a halt. If you put little markers saying four minutes to go, three minutes to go along the queue and give a sense of progress, that makes people happier. The worst thing you can have is a queue alongside your own queue, which is moving faster than your queue is. But there are a whole lot of questions which apply to both A and E. If we had Disney, and along with some really good logistical people looking at this, I think you could solve a large part of the problem very quickly. Now, actually, global infrastructure partners, when they ran Gatwick Airport and London City Airport, brought in people from manufacturing who are normally in control of manufacturing production lines to look at the queuing, and they did a pretty good job. I don't know if you've been through London City, but they've it's done not something. That's true, yeah. Uh, they've done some pretty intelligent stuff, and it's impressive. The other thing you can do, I mean, you can ask a philosophical question, both of A&E and of air, airline check-in, which is why not adopt cheese counter queuing where you take a number, go off and have a coffee, and you're called two minutes before you need to check in your bags. Why make people stand in a row like cattle? And I think your point about could you reduce it from four steps to one in airports is really interesting. Now, obviously, you need a final check-in thing at the gate because you can't have people boarding the wrong flight. But if you consolidated the other three previous stages, I might argue that one of the reasons we prefer travelling by Eurostar rather than travelling by plane is that that's more or less what happens on the Eurostar. You go through about three check-in stages, security, passport control, and then it's basically you and the train. Now, keeping people in permanent tenterhooks where you're always one step away from potential disaster, sir, your passport has expired, or whatever it may be, makes people very nervous and anxious. And so by consolidating those stages into one stage, you'd not necessarily reduce the duration of queuing, but you'd make people much, much happier in that wasted period before your flight takes off. You could also make air stewards and air stewardesses more qualified. So you know that pointless moment when you get into the plane and there's a nice air steward or air stewardess saying hello and sort of vaguely checking where you're sitting. If they were the one who was qualified to look at your passport, you wouldn't have had to queue early on. And the other thing I said is when we got to Kalamata Airport, there were some very nice Greek passport control people who also had to look at our COVID tests. Well, if somebody was qualified to, and that produced another queue, two queues there, someone's qualified on the plane when you've got all those empty hours, almost four hours in my case, to go through um, my documents, then you could walk through at the other end. So I think there are all sorts of other things you could be doing to reduce queues. 
And also, I mean, Aer Lingus, I think, if you transit through Dublin, lets you clear US immigration in advance so that when you arrive, you just waltz straight off the plane. So that's another case where you can consolidate administrative hurdles in one place. But I think, I mean, I think there are questions with A&E, for example, which is if they know there's going to be a two hour wait, an A&E is a fairly miserable and possibly infectious experience, whereas there are six branches of Costa within easy walking distance with Wi-Fi and chairs. It is a bit weird in an age of text messaging. They can't say, OK, wander off and make yourself comfortable somewhere else and we'll text you 10 minutes before you're needed. Or in fact, you wouldn't mind, as I say, the wait was five hours in A&E. If you were told because my foot injury wasn't serious, please go away for five hours. You will have a set appointment at, let's say, five in the afternoon, and then we'll do all these things together, the x-ray, the seeing the nurse, the doctor, the blood test. And as you say, it's, I wouldn't mind waiting. It was a lovely day in Hampstead. I could have gone sat on Hampstead Heath or even gone into work for a, a few hours. It's, it's constantly going back to the waiting room. And I think part of it is it's obviously easier for the doctor and the nurse in the NHS if you're waiting there in a holding position. So it's spoiling the doctor and the nurse at the expense of the patient because they can just pluck you out whenever they want. But uh, you could do both. You could have the doctor and the nurse seeing you just as quickly, even more quickly, and having, as you say, Rory, a more comfortable wait. And this, by the way, can benefit the provider. I mean, for example, queuing must cause a significant loss in retail sales at airports. So there's, you know, there's a cost actually to the provider. What tends to happen, I think, which causes this problem, is that businesses tend to look at everything from a provider point of view. In other words, we want to have a lot of people queuing so that we can efficiently process them and there's never a period of slack. But if you look at it through the point of view of someone who experiences the process, actually what you prioritise are very different things. And I think there is this fundamental problem that efficiency is usually looked at entirely through the point of view of the service provider's time, not through the point of view of the customer's time, to an extreme where it becomes hugely disrespectful of the customer's own time. It can be done well. I mean, there's a weird experience I had, which is getting an emergency passport at Victoria. And I basically geared myself up for you know one of the worst days of my life and I found the whole process surprisingly pleasant they always kept you informed and then sure enough what they did is they didn't make you hang around in a miserable kind of public sector room they allowed you to wander off and they told you to come back in three hours and sure enough your passport was waiting for you now you know you can actually with a little bit of psychology you can make this inordinately less painful for the customer and it's strange the extent to which it doesn't happen I mean, an interesting byproduct of COVID is that this business of appointment setting, for people like me who pathologically hate queuing, particularly if it's standing there uselessly when you could, let's be, let's face it, use the same time sitting down on a laptop at a bar, that business where COVID's driven organisations to practice appointment setting, I mean, our local Kent recycling point, it wasn't uncommon, particularly if you had a kind of spring bank holiday weekend, to have queues of 200 cars at that recycling point. Which, and, and rationing things by wasting people's time is a terrible thing to do economically. Aldi this week, hooray, announced they're going to be introducing checkout-free supermarkets, which is essentially queue-free supermarkets. And, and the joy of Amazon 
is that you never have to wait in a shop, do you? You're out at work or out doing something, you come home and, and there is your parcel. So these companies can do it and are doing it. It's just strange, these pockets where very old fashioned queues at all very old fashioned lengths persist. And there are some cases, as a marketer, I'm gonna tell you this, where you want to create a queue. So nightclubs. You might, if you wander around the less salubrious areas of your Greek island, you might find a nightclub where there's a queue to go in and when you finally get in, you'll find the place empty. The reason for that is the presence of a queue signals the desirability of the (laughs) nightclub. And there are some things where you want to create that weird illusion. Same with an empty restaurant. You don't go to the empty restaurant, do you? No, no, nobody wants to go to an empty restaurant. There's a weird psychology around the design of banks, where the reason banking halls were traditionally enormous was that you never wanted a visible queue outside the bank because people would assume there was a run on the bank and it would create mass (laughs) panic. So the purpose of a huge banking hall is to make sure the queue stays out of sight. But so... It varies a little bit from one sector to another. There are cases where the queue might actually, you know, create a kind of feeling of, you know, in a restaurant, it might create a feeling of value. But the extent to which this is looked at intelligently is dismally small. There is a book, by the way, called The Psychology of Queuing, I think by David Meister, who has written quite a bit about this. But it's certainly very interesting in that there are two dimensions to it. There's the simple question of wasted time, which is a thing that economists and logisticians might look at. But there's also the psychological question, which Disney understands. Perhaps Disney wants a queue for the best rides, to be absolutely honest, because the enjoyment of the ride might be increased by a degree of anticipation. But they make sure to make the queue remarkably painless by by making sure it keeps moving. That's one way, by the way, where one queue that splits into four is much, much better than four parallel queues. I mean, first of all, when you have four parallel queues, you can end up, as I occasionally do, in the EasyJet check-in queue. And in front of you is a guy with an out-of-date Estonian passport who's trying to check in a euphonium. (laughs) And that... That means that whereas everybody else is flowing forwards ahead of you, you are there stationary for sort of 25 minutes and it drives you insane. So having one long queue that then splits into five or six post office guichet is better psychologically and logistically and fairer than having parallel queues. And another aspect is make the place where you're queuing or waiting more beautiful. So neither Heathrow Terminal 5 nor... Um, the Royal Free Hospital waiting room are places of great beauty. Whereas, as you said, Rory, about St Pancras, about this station, if you're waiting in a beautiful train station, you don't really, it's, it's pleasurable, particularly if, as you say, you're having a drink, but they're fantastically hideous, these places where you have to queue, adding to the intense agony. Rory, thank you very much. And Harry, enjoy your holiday. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read all of the pieces discussed? If you become a subscriber today, you can get 10 weeks of the magazine delivered to your door, plus a bottle of Pims worth £25 for just £10. To take up the deal, just go to spectator.co.uk slash Pims. I've been William Moore. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. <laughs>